Thank you, Danny. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 6. Most of you probably are aware of this. Maybe some of you younger Christians uh, don't know this yet, but um, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. In fact, when you start going through your Bible, you'll find that there's five wisdom books, and uh, Solomon writes three of them. He writes the book of Proverbs, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and then he writes the book of Song of Solomon. And I think of all the characters to study in the Bible, Solomon has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, You know, when I was a young Christian and I began to look at the different books of the Bible and and it didn't take me long to figure out that his books were, were something very special. Solomon reigns for 40 years. And, uh, and in his reign, it's a perfect picture and really a perfect model for what we know in the Bible as the millennial reign of Christ. There's no wars during his period of time. In fact, uh, Thursday night, I, I told you and showed you how that um, you know, we talk about the premillennial return of Christ, and I showed you how that, uh, with the beginning of the kings of Israel, uh, you see that very teaching all the way through the Bible, that Christ is going to come back, you know, and before the millennium. And I showed you how that the first king that Israel got was Saul. We know Saul was the wrong king. He was the bad king. Saul is one of the 18 men in the Old Testament who are a picture of the Antichrist. So Saul is a perfect example of how the Antichrist is going to come before the real Christ shows up. The second king that they have was the man that God wanted them to have all along, and that was David. David is a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ. You'll notice when they go into Joshua, into Joshua, when they go into the land, that they have all of these nations that they're up against and they have to fight. And uh, many of those nations get subdued, but it's not till David comes to the throne that the last of the enemies that are in the land that was promised to Abraham are abolished and, and wiped out. And because of that, David is a type of Christ at the second coming because David, Christ is going to subdue all of Israel's enemies. And then the next king that they get is Solomon, David's son. And where Saul is a picture of the Antichrist and David is a picture of Christ at the second coming, then Saul, uh, Solomon is a picture of Christ uh, during the millennium on the throne of Israel. After David wipes out the enemies, there's 40 years of peace. And it's a great picture of the millennial reign of Christ. So to me, it's no wonder that when you realize that in the millennial reign of Christ, God's wisdom will be dispersed all through the world. And you'll find this in many places in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 comes to mind. Uh, You're going to see that when Solomon reigns in 1000 BC, the world knows all about God, the wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God, and the God of Israel. Now, as I said Thursday night, you don't get that in school today. In high school or colleges, they'll never talk about the nation of Israel and its impact. The devil has made sure that because we got into the times of the Gentiles, which is what we talked about Thursday night, we know now that the whole thing's been covered over. The last thing the devil wants to do is for have anybody to focus on the nation of Israel as the world power that it was because it'll lead you to the world power that it's again going to be. 
But at this particular time, the whole world knew about the God of Jerusalem. There's many places in the Bible that show the depths of his wisdom and the impact that it had on this earth. And as a young Christian, I recognized the importance of his books and how that his books were chosen by God to contain not only the mind of God, but the wisdom of God. And, and all the other books in the Bible will go back to that. You know, I talk about character studies. If you want to study the character of God, you go to the five wisdom books. If you want to study the character of God's suffering, you go to the book of Job. In Job is the greatest passages in all of the Bible on the suffering of God. If you want to study the character of God as far as God's heart, you go to Psalms. Because no book lays out the heart of God better than Psalms does. But if you want to do a character study on God for the mind of God, what, what we've been talking about, and the wisdom of God, then you go to Proverbs. You want to study the character of God as far as the Holy Spirit and see the mind of the Spirit, then you go to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you want to study the mind of God as far as Christ and His looking at the church, then you go to the book of Song of Solomon, which represents the mind of Christ for us. But I think what, what really got me was the depth of Solomon's wisdom. And the fact that the depth was based on simplicity, not complexity. When you look at Solomon's wisdom, as we're going to do today, and I'm going to show you a great example of this that's in the passage here, he never, he never, he never looked at the world in a complex way. The marvel of the depth of his wisdom lies in the simplicity of it. And boy, that was a lesson that I, I learned. And I, I'll tell you something else that I learned as a young man was the fact that uh, uh, he never looked outside. He never looked outside of God's wisdom uh, for any other wisdom. And that was a great lesson for me. And for 40 plus years, I, I, I haven't looked outside God's wisdom either. So I saw the value of his writings and yet also saw the key to God's wisdom was simplicity, not complexity. The first thing I've learned in life when I got really into this and saw it and got into the Bible was the fact that how man will always take something that God lays out in such a simplistic way and try to make it complicated. Salvation is the number one thing. The easiest thing in the world to understand in the Bible is God's simple plan of salvation. But what man does is he takes it, he complexes it, he makes it in such a complex way that, uh, that complicates it, he makes it in such a complex way that it's, it's almost impossible to get to. When you go off the Bible college someplace, it's, it, all you get is a system of, 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 of terms that make everything so hard to grasp. They used words and terms that nobody in the Bible ever spoke of. They took the simple things of God, the wisdom of God, and put it on such a high level that, that man can ever hardly attain to it. And when you come through the Bible and you see it, you see how God will always make it as simple as it really is. I think personally, probably one of the greatest verses, if not the greatest verse in the Bible, uh, that shows you the greatest single key of unlocking the wisdom of God and how simple it really is, is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And, 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 and even though I understand Solomon didn't have the book of Romans, Solomon had this principle. 
And it was a model for him that he used, which serves as a model for me through all of his writings. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And then he says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He simply says there that you understand the wisdom of God, you understand the complexity of all that God did by simply looking at the things that he created. The wisdom and the depth of Solomon was his ability to see all that God had created and then seeing God's pictures and models through all of that. And this will be the pattern of the Bible. This will be the model that when you study them, you'll see the things revealed that God wants us to see. It's like when you study the ark of Noah and you see it as a type of Christ. You want to study Christ and you look at something that God told Noah to make. We look at the tabernacle and you want to understand what your life really should be with God and your relationship with God. It's a very complex thing. You could buy a thousand books written by a thousand different men and it all would lead you down to the endless reams of volumes of paper. Yet you go to that tabernacle back there and you'll simply find that there are seven furnishings in that tabernacle and if you want to understand what your relationship should be with God, simply look at that model. Take those seven things, find out what they mean in your life and you're there. We've got the tree of life, how complex it is. And everybody says, well, what was the tree of life and how is this and now that? And people say, well, it's, all, it's a very complicated thing. The Bible says the fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life. That's a great model for understanding how to win people to Christ. Trees in the Bible. Trees in the Bible always represent people. We can talk about the sun and the moon and the stars. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is if if one star differs from another star in glory, some are bright, some are medium bright, some are very faint. As one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You want to study the judgment seat of Christ? Study stars. Job, uh, another wisdom book, and certainly one that Solomon would have had, told him in Job chapter 12, verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, But ask now the beasts, and they will teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and to the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord had wrought this? Now, He says here that we can learn from the animals. They'll teach us. The birds, the earth, the fish of the sea. It was no accident that Jesus, when he started to send out his 12 and gather his apostles to reach man, that he got commercial fishermen. And then he told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That model is a model for soul winning all the way down through the history of the world. It's no accident. Verse 9 says, Who knoweth not that all these, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Well, today, unsaved man doesn't know it. College professors don't know it. 98% of God's people and the pastors in this country don't know it either. So Solomon in his wisdom talks about all these things, for he knows that 
in their creation was the wisdom of God's hand that will teach us. I want you to look for a moment over in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. Now here is a passage that shows you the depth at this particular time, and we're around 1000 B.C., how Solomon's reign affected every other nation on this planet. It's incredible. But then I want you to see this. He says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, he says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceedingly much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelleth the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrite, and Heman, and Charcoal, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was all nations round about. And he spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. He spake of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes. And there came of all people near to, the, uh, to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth which had heard his wisdom. Now, there is a classic example of what he's talking about. Uh, his wisdom came from understanding that great principle in Job 12 and Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Because verse 33 says he talked about trees, the hyssop out of a wall, the beasts, the fowls of the air, the creeping things, and fishes, because he knew that they all represent something that God wants to show us. He realized that the wisdom of God lies in the simplicity of the things that God created. If you want to learn about all that God's doing, then study his creation, because in there will be the answers and be the wisdom that you're looking for. Now, our text today is in Proverbs chapter 6. 6 through 11. And this is my famous message on ants. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, I, I want you to see why Solomon was so interested in watching ants. And my goal today is to get you interested in watching ants because you can learn a lot from ants. Now, he says this. He says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, old sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. Now, Father, we ask you today to help us to see the wisdom in this simplicity. Help us to quit looking for the wisdom outside of God. And help us to start seeing and looking for the truth and the wisdom of God in the simple things that God created. And Lord, we do love you and we thank you for all that you do for us. And we pray now your blessings upon this time. And let us leave here a little smarter, Father, and how to grasp and, and to look at the things that you've created and to see the things that you want to teach us from them. And we'll be careful and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, let me say this. In life and the issues of life, the key word for you and for me as a Christian is simply one word. 
It's the word perspective. We lose our perspective, everything else goes. We can talk about a thousand things a Christian ought to have in their life, but it all boils down to one word, that is perspective, and losing our perspective. And, uh, you know, the perspective of what God is doing on planet Earth and how you and I fit into that. We never want to lose sight of that. And you find a Christian who has went by the wayside, so to speak, and they're no longer, they're no longer uh, involved in what God is doing and this kind of out there, you know, in la-la land someplace, and they've lost their fire, they've lost their drive, they've lost that, they don't go to church as much as they should, they don't do anything when they go there, they just kind of hang out. If somebody would say, what is that person's problem? We could look into that life and we could probably find in different individuals a thousand different things that we would say was the problem. The problem is they've lost their perspective. When you lose your perspective, you've lost everything. And this is what happens to to people. It happens to saved people, but it happens to unsaved people. We live in a world today where everybody has lost their perspective. And we are as lost as we can be. And I must admit that for most Christians, that is the number one issue. Because everything goes back to that, losing their focus of what's really important and what's not. Hey, let's face it. We've talked about the issues of life. You know what the devil does? The devil's main sphere for a child of God, he doesn't care about the unsaved people. He's got them. But he doesn't have you, and he knows that if you would ever get on track and ever give God everything that you need to give him, you'd probably turn the world upside down. But what he does is he takes the issues of life, and he makes them so complicated, and he makes them so, so volatile in our lives. We've got so many other issues falling on us in our lives that we just lose the real reason that God saved us. And the devil makes sure that we never get past that. He makes sure that no matter what you do or where you go, you just never really plug in to the Word of God. There's always going to be something holding you back. And you will get to the end of your life and you will scratch your head and you will wonder why your life's tragedy, why you've lost this, you've lost that, you don't have this, you don't have that. You'll whine and you'll complain and you'll sit down with people and try to explain it to them. And the bottom line is simply this. God saved you for a purpose and that purpose has comes with a perspective. You lose the perspective, you're done. It's just that simple. It's not hard. It's not hard. For all of us, it takes an eternal vigilance to not get pulled off track. For it's the little things that can do it, and that's the real danger. It's never the big things. It's the little things. Like the old-time story I told you last week about for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. And you walk all the way up and see that it, the great consequences of the battle. read a story one time of a man who had a flight, that he went to the airport, and he had checked his bags, and he was walking down to the gate, and he saw this machine with this sign that said, know your future for 25 cents. Well, uh, he, he couldn't resist, so he went over, and he put a quarter in it, and immediately the lights flashed, and he came up, and he says, hello, John Phillips, you are on Delta Flight 253 to Boston. Well, he was amazed. How did they know who he was? All he did was put a quarter in. 
How did this machine know that? Well, he saw one of his buddies he was flying with. He brought him over and he said, this is the greatest thing you ever saw in your life. And he, he put another quarter in and up again it popped. Your name is John Phillips, and you're on Delta Flight 253 to Boston. He says, look at that. Well, his buddy didn't think much about it, but he was just captivated by this. So he says, I, I got to do this one more time. He didn't have a quarter. He was out of quarters. So he runs on down to, to the newsstand down here, and, you know, people are getting their coffee and getting their newspaper, and the line was quite long. So he's standing down there, and he's waiting and in there, get in there, and finally, he, after a while, he gets up there, and he, he gets a change. He buys some gum or something to get a quarter. He runs back up there, and he says, i got to do this one more time. He puts his quarter in, and it says, you are John Phillips, and you have missed your flight to Delta 253 to Boston. My point is this. It's easy to get sidetracked and miss the real plan of God in our lives. Doesn't take much to pull us off. Doesn't take much to get us out of where God wants us to be. Now, we have been talking about the issues of life in Proverbs and how it relates to God's wisdom. And I know of no greater example of how a saved man can lose his perspective better than a study of ants. Years ago, I did a lot of, I did a, I, I'm, a, I'm the kind of guy who I just believe what the Bible says. And I do probably what a lot of people look at, I, I would think is stupid. Back home when I was just gotten right, we had a guy back in the Canton Baptist Temple that everybody thought was a little off. And uh, everybody thought he, everybody just kind of made fun of him, and he, he, he was kind of slow, but, but uh, he was at church every Sunday, and he took notes as best he could. He had a Bible, and, and I always kind of uh, watched him. And I, I, when I was going out of the church one night after uh, some kind of practice or whatever we had, and I saw him over there along the, along the bushes, and there was a bunch of shrubs there, and he was down on his hands and knees, and I thought, I thought he was... I, I thought he was looking for, uh, you know, he, that he had, was pulling out weeds or doing something to clean the church. But I wanted to make sure he was all right. Now, I can't even remember his name now. I walked over to him and I said, hey, I said, are you okay? And he said, he looked up and he went, shh. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, uh, and I looked down, there was a little de- dead bird there. And he says, I'm just being here. The Bible says that not a sparrow falls to the ground and God doesn't know it. I'm just kind of spending some time where God's at. Now, you know, people think that was stupid. That old boy had something. From that point on, I thought we were deranged and he was normal. But you know, that's the way it gets sometimes. That's the way it's got in Christianity. A hundred years ago, what we believed was normal and everybody else was out in left field. Now, we're out in left field and everybody else thinks they're normal. It's the way it goes in life. And... And I, I, I learned. I learned. And years ago, I took Solomon's advice, and I spent a whole summer studying ants. I really did. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. They're right in your backyard. And, I, and, I, and, I, and today, I, I, I still look at them. When I'm mowing the grass or I'm taking the dogs out, it's just a, ingrained in me. I'm constantly looking at all the little ant hills in my yard. And sometimes when I have time, I'll just sit there. If I want in the afternoon, late afternoon, have a cup of coffee, I'll just sit there and, and I'll, I'll watch them little guys. And I do it because Solomon said that's not what we're supposed to do, that there's something we can learn from that. 
And I'm going to here to tell you, I know of no other species of insects or animals for that matter that match man and life on planet Earth better than the ants. And I'm here to tell you this morning, and you'll understand what I'm about when I'm saying, done saying what I'm saying. Solomon was right on the money when he said to keep our perspective on the issues of life. He said, go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. So allow me for a few moments, since we're in this chapter today, to show you my findings. Now this is called my riminology in the big world. It's a study of ants. And you may not know this, but you have, everybody here, you have at least, at least one million ants in your yard. A normal yard. And they live in what is called colonies. Much like in the state of Missouri, they have, we have cities. In your yard, there may be 20 or 30 different colonies. And just like us, ants have their own social system. No other animal has a social system like the ants do. You have worker ants. You'll have 200,000 of them in any colony. And they do the work. You have ants that are called drone ants. And they are there for the queen. They attend her and they do whatever needs to be done. You have soldier ants. They fight and protect the colony. And then, of course, you have the queen ant. She lays the eggs, and she is the center of the, of the colony, the queen ant. Everything centers around her. I don't know if you know this or not. Ants have an incredible ability to communicate with each other. They can communicate over great distances by sending out some kind of ultra sound waves through the little antennae on the top of their head, and they communicate. Next to man, or maybe it's reversed, the ants are the greatest builders and the architects on planet Earth. You see, we don't see this because we never study it. But when you study the ant, you see that they're unparalleled in what they do. And when you want to talk about life on planet Earth, they are just like us. Because next to man, they are the greatest builder and architect on this planet. They build an underground system or complex that defies belief. A series of tunnels that sometimes when you see it on the top there with that little mound, it'll go down two or three hundred feet, off maybe a hundred feet in each direction. Of chambers and tunnels and passageways with rooms. There's rooms for eggs in the egg chamber. There's room for food in the food chamber. They even have it set up so that when, the, when it rains and the rain comes down, you know, ants don't do well with water. They breathe through their sides, you know, so they, they can't deal with water. So they build an elaborate system as the water comes down and the water comes in and it begins to come down and get into their holes. They have built in water traps that take the water off to keep it from drowning out the ants. Incredible. They have a tunnel system that is unbelievable. They have, a, they have, a, they have chambers for where they live, chambers where they store their food. They have work areas. The worker ants are continually cleaning it out, expanding it, repairing it, just like I-435 and Highway 70. It's an ongoing process. And the soldier ants, 
while everybody else is working. They're standing guard, operating patrols, making sure that the other colonies don't attack. Ants, like man, have a unique system of working together to solve problems. You ought to watch them when they have to unplug a tunnel that gets stamped in or or crushed in. Moving large objects. You ought to watch them sometimes when they have to cross a river. They'll work together where the larger ants will go up and, and chew off a leaf. They'll, 20 or 30 of them will drag it down to the water's edge. 20 or 30 of them will get on the leaf and let the current carry it across. It's incredible what they do. Incredible what they do. Worker ants are incredibly strong. One ant can lift 20 times his own weight. That would be a ton and a half for you and for me. Ants are the only insects other than man that plan, organize, and carry out structured warfare with other colonies. The soldier ants, they're ferocious fighters. One time scientists were filming a battle between two and two soldier ants were locked in combat for 72 hours. That fight went on between those two. There's a movie out that came out in the 50s with Charlton Heston called The Naked Jungle. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's one of the greatest. It's based on a true event in Africa. And if you've never been to Africa, which most of you haven't, if you go over there, you know, you go in your backyard, you see the little ant colonies that are about that high or about that high. You go to Africa, they're 20, 30 feet in the air. I mean, them suckers look like condominiums. And years ago, before they got control of it, every 30 or 40 years, billions Billions of ants would congregate together and go across the land and they would eat everything, kill everything. That, that ants would be so many billions of them, it would, be, it, would be, it, would be, it would be 20 miles deep and two miles wide. Nothing but ants. And they would just come across and, and, and eat everything. And that's what that movie's about. It's hard to believe that an ant could kill an elephant. But when 100 million ants get on an elephant, that elephant may kill 10,000 ants with each foot. But in the end, the sheer number of the ants win and the elephant gets killed. Incredible what they do. They make captives and slaves out of the other ants they don't kill when they win. Incredible. Incredible. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible thing to, to look at. And they like man in every way, in every aspect of the ant world. It's just like man on planet Earth and his world system. Now, this is why Solomon said, look, study the ant. If you want to get wisdom about perspective, then you go and study something that God created. And my, my, my. Oh, did I forgot to mention that ants have a religion? They all have one female deity, deity, one queen. One queen of heaven, Jeremiah chapter 36. One female queen ant that every other ant is subservient to and everything they do in that kingdom and that colony goes back to that one female deity that they hold up as the queen. Put that someplace in your notes. It's incredible. Everything they do will be for her. Just like the Baal worship in the Old Testament or the false religions today. She's the center of the ant world. Just, we've been studying it. 
the evil man and the strange woman. Just as the strange woman is the center of the world today and represents religion, this society of ants that's just like man has a female deity that they all look to and they all serve. Hey, I'm telling you, Solomon knew what he was saying when he said, consider the ant and be wise. In every way they illustrate and show us our world system that blindly follows the queen of heaven or some man-made system and never sees the reality of the situation and never gains perspective. Now, I can't speak for anybody here today other than myself. And I know that many, many people like to live in a dream world. I get that. I understand. I deal with them all the time. Obviously, some of those dreams have turned into nightmares. But I understand. But for me, and I can't speak for you, but for me, reality is everything. Perception of my situation on planet Earth is paramount. As a child of God, mandated by God, with the commission of God, I can never afford to lose my perspective. Amen. You watch Bill O'Reilly on, on Fox News at night around 7 or 8 o'clock. And he does a great job, and I like to listen to him. But he, he talks about, he builds his whole program, and he calls it the no-spin zone. Now, by him saying that, what he's saying is this. You're going to get all the other news media and all of it out there, and they're going to get the news, and they're going to spin it your way. But I, Bill O'Reilly, is going to take all of that, sort it out, and what you get from me is going to be the bottom line truth without any spin. Well, I got news for you, Mr. O'Reilly. The no spin zones in this book, Amen. not on your TV program. You just spin it from your perspective because of what you want to do. Reality starts with an absolute final authority. You can never have reality without absolute truth. Reality depends on absolute truth just as absolute truth has to have reality. And that goes back to the Bible. And yet the world system can look so convincing, can it? That's all, all that, that all that is going on around us, all that is, all is being laid out in front of us, all that we're seeing, all that we're a part of, everything that you want to hear, everything that goes on, it's all about it. A, a great example of this is, if, if you pay any attention to this, I don't get to watch it a lot, but sometimes I catch it, is that guy who's, who's President Obama's press guy, Jay Carney. No matter what goes wrong, whether it's Americans killed in, in, in Africa or this or that or something that somebody screwed up someplace or the, the IRS keeping out certain organizations and targeting them, no matter what it is, he's got the hardest job in the world. He has to go in and portray that everything is rosy when everything's a mess. I went to the pharmacy a couple of weeks ago. Had to get some medicine. Really, I was looking to see if they legalized marijuana yet, but they hadn't done that yet. <laughs> but I, I went in there, and I'm waiting in the pharmacy, and there's a little sign that said, do your child a flavor. How many have seen that? A couple of you. Do your child a flavor. And what the sign was is that when you get medicine for your child, most medicine tastes terrible. 
So now you can get flavor that you put in the medicine to make nasty tasting medicine taste okay. And so you got to give your child the medicine. It tastes terrible. Do your child a flavor. Buy cherry flavor. Put it in the medicine. The kid will take it. And that's exactly what the devil does on planet Earth. Every bad thing that's out there that is a disaster, everything that threatens every liberty that you have, everything that's out there that's going to take away and destroy what you have in God, to keep it looking like it, what it really is, and for you to lose your perspective, the devil just flavors it. Amen. He just flavors it. It's all he does. You see it in churches. You go there and sit in large auditoriums when they have big screen TVs. Ours is right behind me here. And they have, you'll see everything up there. You'll see the preacher when he's preaching. You don't even have to look at him. You can look off to the side. They got praise bands. They got choirs that sing beautiful songs. They got, they got worship services. They got everything except the Bible. Amen. Now, for me, reality is the Bible. What good is to have a lot of fluff at the end of the day when you get down to business, you don't have what God said, but it's flavored. It's flavored. You see it in politics. Obamacare is the greatest thing in the world. We have shined up 8 million people who did not have health care. And yeah, you got 10 million other people who lost theirs. Spin it. Flavor it. You certainly see it at work, don't you? All the drama that goes on and unfolds. You see it in world affairs. Russia wants to invade the Ukraine. She knows she can't do that. She knows that if she just overruns the borders and takes it all, that the outcry of the world would be terrible. So what does she do? What does Putin do? I'll tell you what he does. He says... These poor Russians that are down there in the Ukraine, in the Crimea, down there, they're being persecuted by all the other non because they're Russians. We're going to go in and help our people. That's how you do it. You flavor it. You just add a little spice to it. Put a little cherry vanilla in it. Make something that is terrible taste good. You see it in every news media on this planet. They control what you hear. I'll tell you right now, it doesn't matter how you vote, doesn't matter what you and I think, it doesn't matter what's going to take place or transpire. Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States. And only because that the powers that be in this country want her to be, they will flavor it all. I'm telling you, and I'm not a prophet, nor am I a son of the prophet. The UN. The UN was started in around 1918, around 1919 after World War I, which was supposed to be the war that would end all wars. They built a big building in, in New York, and they put on it a quotation out of the Bible that talked about the millennium, beating your swords into plowshares. That's a verse on the millennium in the Old Testament. There have been 348 wars since it started. They didn't do a thing. They just flavored it all. Peace talks. Ceasefires. Peace, Peace Corps. United Way. FEMA. World Council of Churches. National Council of Churches. The ecumenical movement. 
It's all a flavoring to cover up and mask what God is really doing. I think the book of Esther is probably one of the greatest single books in the Bible when you understand it. You know, it's the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. Only book. The only book in the Bible where there's absolutely no mention of God in any way, shape, or form. And you, somebody, you know, most people have read the Bible all their lives and never seen that. And I'll tell you, when I saw that, I said, there's something special about this. There's something special about a book that is in the Bible that is written that does not have any reference to God in it. Then I began to see where Esther fit in. I began to see how that the book of, when you put the orders of the books in the Bible, you got to see the book of, of Ezra. And Ezra is a beautiful picture of how the Jews go back. You got to see the next book, which is, which is Nehemiah, and how that's a beautiful picture of how the Jews rebuild, like they did in 1948. And then your next book is, is Esther. You know, in Esther, there's a wedding and a king's garden for seven days and seven nights. You know, in Esther, there's a man by the name of Haman who's a type of the Antichrist. You know, in the book of Esther, you've got a period of time where God is not mentioned anywhere at all. You can't find God on the surface of that book anywhere. But if you look underneath, you'll find that God is in power and he's doing and structuring everything underneath. You just can't see it from the top. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the latest in church age we're living in right now. You can't see God in the government. You can't see God in churches. Some of you can't see God in your own life. You can't see God in what he's doing. We live in a world that has is, that is got an absent mindset when it comes to God. And yet, I'm here to tell you, God is much at work today. The fact that we won't mention him in schools, can't pray to him in, in Congress, the fact that we can't put up Ten Commandments in our courthouse, we can't pray before ball games, means absolute nothing. God, like the book of Esther, is in power, he's underneath the surface, and he's doing what he's doing to get ready for the next book, which is Job, the tribulation, and then the next book, which is Psalms, the millennium, and then the next book, which is Proverbs. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it's all around us. And Solomon was right on the money when he said, you want to understand the world system? You want to understand why people are all messed up and have lost their perspective? They're just like the ants. Ants are a picture of the world system. They have order. They have structure. They have an army. They have a religion. They have families. They have connection, uh, communication. They have highly skilled labor. They have an order within their society. They're always expanding their world. You'll learn a lot by studying. Ants are always working. Ants are always alert. Ants are always communicating. Ants are always populating. Their work is endless and tireless. To attain a goal of a very high standard of society, more like man than any other creature that God created. But here's my question, and here's the real sermon this morning. 
But to what end? But to what purpose? The race that they're in, the goals that they have, have no finish line. No clear objectives. Their conflicts that they have with the other colonies, there are no absolute solutions. Their wars never bring peace. And just like our world system, it's just an endless multiplication and duplication of effort that brings no final end to anything till you die and step out into eternity. Oh, Solomon was right, man. I can see him. I can see him out there on the grass of the palace, on the grass with his hand on it, watching those ants come in and out, watching them build those things. I watch him one day crush that thing with his thumb and sit down the next day and it's built back just the way it was, if not better. And I think of him sitting there watching that and saying, how foolish they are. I, I look at him sitting there and watching that and saying to himself, how foolish they are. And then putting into perspective and say, how foolish man is. Because good as the ants are, and in my backyard, they're everywhere. They love my yard. Some of them other people put them chemicals on that makes your grass look good but kills the ants. They all move to my yard. I have an ant sanctuary in my backyard. I watch them all day long. I've watched them come out of my driveway that's total cement out of a crack where I got the wall coming down to the side, and I've watched a stream of about 5,000 go up, another one coming down all day long. They're going somewhere under my house. A few of them show up at our sink. <laughs> she wants to kill them. But as good as they are, and in my yard, they build the most elaborate systems of living. At the end of the day, still my yard. Their purpose and the labor and all their structures is all for naught. Those ants never get it. They're building and building their little worlds in my yard. And by the same token, as good as man may be at building and setting up kingdoms and governments and democracies, setting up one nation that for a period of time will conquer all the other nations till another greater nation comes and rises and conquers them, as good as man may be at building and buildings and bridges and tunnels under rivers and oceans, computers that will do our thinking, air conditioners that will keep us cool, fly six times the speed of sound, Space, sending robots to Mars. Come on, man. How fast his cars will go, all of his marvels, how high his planes will fly to the moon and outer space, no matter how big his army may be or how powerful his king, his queen, or his president. I mean, the race to be the most powerful nation today is America, Russia, and China. And China's leading the pack. Russia's second, America's third. Not according to Jay Carney. But in the past, it was Germany and Japan, wasn't it? Before that, it was France, and then it was England, and then it was Spain. And before that, it was the Greeks, it was the Persians, it was the Romans, and it was the Egyptians, wasn't it? But at the end of all the kingdoms, no matter what man builds, no matter how good he is, 
at the end, it's still God's planet. And man who builds like the ant on another man's property has lost his perspective that somebody else owns the land that I've claimed to be mine. And just because you think you're all-powerful and have lost your perspective and forgotten the one who is all-powerful, it makes no difference. I think every Christian ought to have an ant farm. I had one when I was nine years old. Looking back, now where I stand with the Bible and God and what God has shown me, it probably was one of those things that was the greatest thing. Udman Scientific Company. Remember them? They, they were out right after the Civil War. I'm not sure what your problem is. Udman Scientific, Jim remembers them. Udman Scientific Company. Sent you a catalog every three, four months. All kinds of scientific things in it. I started out with a chemistry set, blew the back porch off. That was done with that. $5.50, I bought an ant farm. An ant farm was about that big, about that wide. You filled it with dirt. You got ants that came, add water, put them in the thing. And you would stand there, and they would tunnel down along the glass. And you would actually see a whole structure of their system. You could watch the queen lay her eggs, and you could watch the worker ants doing what they're doing. You could have fun and cover all the holes up and watch them get up there and dig it all out, you know, the little hard hats. And they'd get up there and they'd chisel all that stuff out. They were one of the most incredible things I ever saw in my life. They still make them. They're just not like they were when I was a kid. And then one day, I got that when I was 1959, 1960. I was nine years old, somewhere in there. One of the most impressive things I ever saw. But one day I grew up. I tired of the ant farm. I hit 16 years old and saw there was girls. <laughs> and one day I went into that bedroom with that ant farm and they had worked on now for five or six years. And I looked at that thing and I said, you know what, I need more room here and I got this and I got that and I got to get rid of this. And I just picked up that ant farm. I walked out the front door, down to the trash in the back, and I just threw that thing away. I never stopped and asked the ants one time what they thought about it. I never thought for a moment. And when I, when, I, when, I, and I, when, I, when I took that down there, I tired of it, and I threw it away because I had a fuller life now. I had bigger dreams now, and I just walked down there to the trash, and I threw that ant farm away, and I'm going to tell you something. Just as I cast off that ant farm when I got to a point in my life when things change, so God will cast off and tire of this old earth. There will be a day coming, Revelation 19 and 20, that all kings of the earth, all the nations, all the presidents, all the kings, they'll be cast into hell, Psalms chapter 9, verse 17. There'll be a time when the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes back, and the fact that we have lost our perspective in America, he'll establish his kingdom, 
a new heaven, a new earth, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom that is based on truth, uh, his rule, his government with his standards, and he will care, absolutely care nothing who built what, who made what, or who was president when he came. You know why? He owns the earth. It's his. Just as I bought and paid for my land at 8308 Woodson Drive and bought my ant farm for $5.50, God bought and paid for this planet. He holds the title clear. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he's coming to claim his kingdom and he'll not ask one president. He'll not ask Obama. He'll not ask Putin. He'll not ask Muhammad. He'll not ask the Pope. He'll not ask the Queen of England or the Dukes of Hazard. Who what he thinks? He's coming back and he's going to claim it. It'll be his plan, his way without consoling you or me or anybody. He will simply throw out the ants and the ant farm when he's ready. How foolish we are. How foolish we are that we think we can live our lives without the impact of the perspective of what God is doing. Look at verse 9, 10, 11. How long will thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? You had a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. He says, how long will thou sleep, O sluggard? And this is the state of the world. This is the state of the majority of God's people. He simply asked, when will you wake up and see that all of our labor, all the things that we do are simply in vain? You know, there's a great question asked in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. He says, wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. He says, you know what? We spend all of our money on things that have nothing to do with the word of God. We, we don't invest in the souls of men or the ministry. We labor all day long. We go home bone tired and we labor and yet there's no satisfaction in the labor. There have been times that we had a killer of a day. Sunday morning, going down to turn around and going out there and doing everything we're doing. And I know you're tired, I'm tired. And I've drove and, driven home and I've thought to myself, I'm about as tired as I know how to get. And the Lord always whispers in my ear, but it's a good tired, isn't it, Bob? And I'll say, yeah, it is, Lord. And then I'll remember. I remember there's times that I played with the devil and for the devil that I was really, really tired. There were times when I gave all my energy to the world and all the things out there, and I went home tired. But you know what? If I can do it to them and give it to the world, I can certainly give it to God. And it's a good tired when you labor for something that means something. My mother always had a way of bringing things into perspective. She was a very comforting mother. I went in one time and I had fallen down as a kid and I hurt my arm. And I said, Mom, I said, I fell and hurt my arm. And she, her answer was, well, you didn't hurt it doing anything for me. 
See you Mother's Day, Mom. <laughs> but she was right. Because I was doing something stupid when I fell. And I think you're laughing at that, and it is funny. But I think God looks at some time when we complain how tired we are, and God says the same thing. Well, you didn't get tired doing anything for me. My mom had a lot of wisdom. I don't know that she studied ants. Caught her eating them a couple of times. Maybe that helped out a little bit. I don't know. We've simply lost our perspective. We become like the ants. We go through the endless duplication of everything a day, making the world better, fixing what's broke, doing this, having children, fighting wars, defending ourselves, doing this, doing that, worshiping the queen of heaven, going through all the things, but nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes. Last part of that verse in verse 2 says, Hearken diligently unto me and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Verse 11 says... So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. You've been robbed, folks. The devil and all that he did and all that his plan was, his main focus was to steal from you the one thing. Not your health, not your wife, not your husband, not even your kids. No, he knew that if he just took one thing from you, that all of that would take care of itself. So he just came down and stole your book. He stole the only thing that gives you perspective. And when you lose your perspective, you marry the wrong person, you don't train your children right, you don't do the things right in your life, you don't treat God right, and the rest of it just takes care of itself. The world system robbed you of your Bible and perspective. And now you're just slumbering in sleep. You look at the things out there and it's so bad, we don't want to deal with it because it's bad, and the devil just keeps dumping that flavor in it, and what tastes terrible without it suddenly tastes better with it. Today the world is so far from the reality of the true God and His coming plan to rule this world. We live our lives and run our country void of any idea of a holy God, uh, His judgment and His wrath. We're oblivious to his power to destroy all nations. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all the nations are as a drop in the bucket to the Lord. We're oblivious to his power in dealing with all the nations and judging them in his righteousness when he comes back. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 32. It's called the judgment of the nations. And yet as God's people, we're fast asleep. We're slumbering in sleep. We're missing every opportunity that God has for us and losing every reward that could be ours at the judgment seat of Christ. And where the world and the nation and the presidents and the kings and the queens and the potentates, where they think they are the only important nation or power on this earth, all self-serving and all self-satisfying, we as God's people have fallen into the same trap. We live our lives totally unto ourselves without any real acknowledgement of God. I showed you Thursday night Psalm 78 the great chapter in the Bible about the kingdom of being taken from Israel. And I go through there and I broke it down for you and showed you how the, the three different, three or four different sections there. It went all the way back and started what God had done for Israel. And then God talked about what Israel, how they responded. And boy, when I, when I look at Israel and all that God had done for them and how they responded, I'll be honest, I can't help but see 
us in that same boat. I can't speak for you again, nor will I presume to, but I can see my own self in it. I can see how all the things that God did for me. I have the ability now at 63, quick to be 64, looking back and seeing God's hand in things in my life when I didn't even know he was in my life. I see God hand in, molding me and bringing me along every step of the way. Sometimes he had to drag me. Sometimes I followed farther behind, and sometimes I walked alongside of him, and sometimes I even got ahead of him. But I'm telling you, I look at all the things that he did for Israel, all the things that he did for me, and if you're sitting here this morning and you can't look back in your life and think all the things that he'd done for you, if you're a Christian, you're in sorry shape today. Amen. Yet in Psalm chapter 78, verse 36 through 37, God looks at all that he did and all that Israel took with him, took from him, and when, when Israel comes back to God, here's what God says. He says, they did flatter him with their lips, but their heart was far from him. They lied to him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. That's Israel. That's us. Amen. That's exactly where we're at in our lives today. Amen. Perspective. Never losing your ability to see things as they really are. Not as the world flavors them to be, but as they really are. To see Christianity for what it really is, or I should say what it really isn't, not with the flavor of the big concept of making it look so grandiose and so beautiful. Solomon has a great lesson for us in the ant, getting the wisdom of God in the simple things of life, just watching the order and the structure of all God's creation, seeing how it parallels the man and Christianity and our relationship with God. And the wisest man that ever lived, that ever walked the planet, that all the nations of the world looked to for wisdom, said, go to the ant, consider her ways, and be wise. Now, when I did this study years ago, like many of the other studies that I did, you know, I, I used to think about where the Bible talks about meditating in God all day long. Now, I would think to myself, how do you do that and work a job? How do you do that? I used to read about the old-time preachers, you know. They used to pray. They used to talk about praying eight or nine, ten hours a day. And I think to myself, I'd love to be able to do that. But how do you do that? And then one day I, I figured it out. I, I see I was looking at it without a perspective. I was looking at it without a, an understanding. I was thinking that when Charles Wesley or Whitfield prayed nine, ten hours a day, that that means he was on his knees by his bed, you know, with his hands folded. But it wasn't. He was conscious of God from the time he got up to the, day he, to the night when he went to bed. He was thinking of God and the things of God all day long. On his journey from drive, riding on a horse from one town to another was maybe 30, 40 miles. He had a conversation with God about everything he saw. Amen. Amen. And I'm telling you, when you get this like I got it, there's not a time that I'm not mowing the lawn. There's not a time that I'm not taking the dogs out. There's not a time that I'm not in my yard and I see those at anthill that I'm not thinking about God's creation, what it means. 
There's not a time that I look at the moon and I don't understand it's a type of the Christian. There's not a time that I don't see the sun come up in the morning and it's blood red and I don't think of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. There's not a time that that sun goes down at night that I don't see it blood red and God, I, God doesn't remind me of what he did for me. There isn't a time that I don't look at the stars at night and see the bright ones, the mediums, and the small ones and I don't think of that thing in 1 Corinthians 15 that, uh, so, so the resurrection of the dead. There isn't a time that I don't see a rainstorm or watch the weather on Channel 9 and say there's a tornado coming. I don't think of the second coming of Christ. There isn't a time that I don't see the thunder clouds blowing on the eastern sky, blowing up and a lightning and a thunder, and I don't stop and think about how that that's a picture of the second coming of Christ. Everything that God created, if you get it and you pay attention, there isn't a time that, I, that you don't see the birds fly or the birds sing and you don't think about God. There's a time that I don't look at some gigantic oak tree and I don't think of God and family trees and trees being like men. There isn't a time that you don't look at something God created when you understand it, that you don't think about God. That is how you meditate him all day long. You learn these things, you understand these things, and then you never look at them the same way again. You don't see a spider weaving its web out there with a dew on it in the morning as you don't think of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs where he talks about the spiders. Everything, the rabbits, the deer, no matter what it may be, you, once you see how the Bible defines it and you understand it, it's the way that you go through life and you see everything that God created and it relates back to something that he gave you. That's meditating all day long. Shoot, you had to be able to spend 15, 16 hours a day just meditating with him. You could be going on and on your work and doing every, what you want to do and somebody can say something over here and because you know the key in the Bible, you think about God and what God's word says. You may not answer him. You may never even look at him. But you're thinking all the time. Your thoughts are toward him. You're sitting down there to do a job and you got something to do and you're saying, Lord, this is a tough thing. I need you to help me. I don't know how many times I was looking for something in a sermon to put in there and I'm still trying to work it and I'm saying, Lord, I know I had that someplace. I don't know where it's at. A little bit, well, God, just give it to me when I need it. Those are the things you got to do. Those are the things you got to follow. Meditate, the Bible says, day and night. You see the sun. You see the moon, the birds, the stars, the rain, the snakes, the rabbits, the deer, the flowers, the trees, the flies, the mosquitoes, Everything is a picture that Solomon was sitting down there and this is why in his wisdom, the, the simplicity of his wisdom was simply looking at the earth, the creeping things, and all the things that God created. And the Bible says he looked at ants. You want a perspective of life? Study the ant. Because it's just like our lives where we go through everything we do and do it the way we do it without any purpose. And we think we're building our dynasty down here. We got millions of dollars in the bank or we got this or we got on this or on that corporation or on this and we got more money. Hey, when God decides to throw away the anthill, it ain't going to matter. Mm -hmm. Amen. And he'll do it. Every head bowed, every eye closed.